Hello and welcome to Queer Respect. I'm Irene. I'm Alice. And I'm Jason. And today we're going to be talking about the Spanish poet and playwright Federico Garcia Lorca. I just want to say in advance that I don't know Spanish. There are a lot of Spanish place names in this, and I can't promise that I'll do a perfect job. Our resident Spanish speaker is out of state. How dare he? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what I did last time. I was like, Eli, help me, and he's not here. Which is why I'm here. But you don't speak Spanish, so you're not fulfilling your role. That is true. I have a few content warnings for this episode. There's a brief mention of homophobic violence. There is some sexual content, and... There is an assassination, and there is one mention of the word gypsy. So if any of that is a problem for you, go and listen to one of our other episodes instead. It will have different content warnings. Federico Garcia Lorca was born on June the 5th, 1898, to his father, Federico Garcia Rodriguez, and Federico Garcia Rodriguez's second wife, Vicenta Lorca Romero. Garcia Rodriguez came from one of the richest and most important families in Fuente Vaqueros, the town where Federico would spend his earliest years. His first marriage was childless. His first wife was infertile, but they were married for 10 years before she died of illness. Mm -hmm. Following this, he married Vicenta, who was 10 years younger and came from a much poorer family. She was a primary school teacher. At this point, in the like main biography that I read, Ian Gibson, the author, spent a great deal of time refuting myths about Federico Garcia Lorca, which I had never heard before because he's not very famous in Australia. <laughs> <laughs> I'd never heard of him until somebody suggested him for this podcast. So I feel it is apparently important to clarify, however, that Federico was not telling the truth when he said he did not speak until he was three years old. Okay. okay. He was apparently a precocious child and spoke very young. And that's a weird myth to make up about yourself. Yeah, I don't know why he said this. Apparently it was something that he said fairly frequently. Okay. And his mother described him as a talkative and precocious child, and this is not true, basically. (laughs) So I don't know why that is a thing. Okay. But I thought I should raise it. The second one, which I did want to mention, is a story that Federico apparently told that due to a serious childhood illness, he did not walk up until age four. Is that true? He did walk before age four, but he was born with very flat feet and legs of slightly uneven length. Mm -hmm. So he always had an uneven gait. He was clumsy. He could never run very well. This limited mobility limited the sorts of childhood games he could participate in and that kind of thing. And so I thought it was worth mentioning that one because it does actually affect the kinds of things he does in his childhood. Mm. Okay. That makes much more sense than saying I didn't speak till I was three. If you say I didn't walk till I was four, that's basically just a simplification of like I had problems with mobility in childhood. Yeah. I mean, I guess I would understand his I didn't speak till I was three story if it kind of went I was silent till three, everyone was very worried, and then I came out with full sentences. They were beautifully formed, I am a poet. Yeah, I guess that's true. I guess that's true. (laughs) Which is possible. But yeah. So given that he couldn't participate in a lot of the sort of act of running around childhood games of the village. Carmen Ramos, the daughter of his wet nurse, who was only a few years older than Federico, Mm -hmm. recalls that his favourite game as a child was to play mass, in which he would dress up in, like, a cloth, like a priest, (laughs) and gather all his, like, bears and any children he could rope into the game and the household servants and make them, like, sit in front of him while he did a homily and then make them repent of their sins. (laughs) 
I found this very funny. <laughs> I've got to say um, that doesn't sound like the funnest childhood game. <laughs> it was his favourite game, apparently. And then he would go and make them say Hail Marys and, like, kiss the Virgin Mary statue in the garden. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that does give us some insight, though, into, like, the importance of religion in his upbringing. Yeah. Later on, you're going to hear about his Jesus self-insert play. <laughs> Righto. I look forward to it. (laughs) So Mass remained his favourite game until his parents took him to see a travelling theatre show when he was about seven or eight, at which point he realised that instead of being a priest, he could make his bears and his servants watch his plays. Ah, Mm. clever. Noticing his interest in theatre at this point, his mother went and bought him a little puppet theatre and several puppets. Oh, that's cute. And he wrote little plays and put them on for the household staff. Sorry, I know that you said this like five minutes ago. What year are we in right now? Like 1905. Okay, cool. Are we in a small village here? Yeah. Yeah. We're in a small village, but his father is a wealthy landowner in the area. So you're not to imagine he's like sort of isolated. Mm, okay. Mm. In a rural way. Like his father owns land here and owns land in several other towns. Okay. okay. And yeah. that kind of thing. In 1907, Federico moved with his family to Ascorosa, a village quite near to Fuente Vaqueros, where his father also owned a house and some land. In Ascorosa, Federico starts attending school. He spent a year at the local primary school before he moved again to stay with an old colleague of his mother's in order to attend a secondary school called the College of Jesus in Almeria. So he only went to primary school for a year. Was that like he did the final year of primary school and then went straight into high school? Yeah, basically. Okay, yeah. Yeah, he does a year of primary school. He spends a little bit of time boarding with this colleague of his mother's Mm -hmm. and going to secondary school there before he progresses to another secondary school. Okay, yeah. Though Federico was obviously very bright, he didn't excel academically. He found academics just didn't really hold his interest. The man he boarded with, Antonio Rodriguez Espinosa, used to take the students that he took on as boarders on little excursions over the weekend and tutor them and that kind of thing. Mm. And he recalled about Federico that Federico never failed to answer a question. The answers could be right or wrong, but they were always unfailingly rapid and ingenious. <laughs> okay. So that's the kind of student Federico is. He's quite like bright and active and just not very what's the word academic yeah like conventional academia just doesn't really suit him Mm -hmm. Mm, okay around 1909 he fell seriously ill was rushed home to his family in Asquerosa and missed several months of school Mm -hmm. and so it took him several years to manage to pass all his exams and progress into secondary school during this time his family moved again to Granada where his father owned a house. <laughs> so I've heard of Granada. That's like a reasonably large city. That's a large city. town. That's a large city. I don't know exactly how big its population is, but it has a university. Federico's father, at this point, preferred to enroll his children in a non-Catholic school. The school he ended up choosing for his sons was called the College of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. It was the least religious school he could find. <laughs> That's pretty religious. <laughs> He apparently deemed it to have the least clerical influence of all his options, Mm -hmm. which I understand probably meant that there were lay teachers as well as priests teaching. Okay. In Granada, Federico, I was going to say Federico discovered music, but this isn't really accurate. His family has always been musical. He had Mm -hmm. an aunt teach him the guitar when he was young and he was always very gifted at music. But 
At age 11 in Granada, he first begins having formal music training, mm-hmm. which he had a lot more interest in than his academic schoolwork. His um family remembers him spending hours at the keyboard at this time. All his friends remembered him as a gifted pianist. The teacher his parents found for him in Granada was called Antonio Segura Misa. He was a minor composer. He wasn't particularly successful as a like professional musician himself, but he was a very respected teacher. Mm-hmm. And he particularly clicked with Federico, who found in him not only a teacher, but also like a mentor and a confidant and somebody who saw his potential as a musician and thought it was worth pursuing. And that effort put into Federico's training and that kind of appreciation of his potential led Federico to devote a lot more time to his music than his studies. Mm -hmm. Even at this age, he would have liked to devote himself completely to music. He was much more interested in a career as a pianist than he was in writing at this time. Does he show any interest in writing at this point? Not really. Not hugely. As a teenager, he's determined to become a pianist. He practices for hours a day and basically disregards his studies entirely. One of his classmates recalls, Federico was the worst in the class. Not because he lacked intelligence, but because he wouldn't do a stroke of work. <laughs> so, yeah, he disregarded his studies This, this sounds like a lot of musicians in high school. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what sort of music he would have been learning? I do, actually. He apparently loved Debussy. Okay. Who was very contemporary at this time. Like, Debussy was quite new. Yeah. Debussy... I think never went to Granada, but had a thing about Granada. (laughs) (laughs) Like a weird, exoticized Spanish thing about Granada? Um, It's sort of hard to say, because Federico believed that Debussy was, like, representing Granada in a less sort of idealized and false way than many composers were. Okay. But I'm not really sure why he believed this. Okay. But anyway, Debussy had a thing about Granada, and Federico had a thing about Debussy. Good. Fair enough. He loved Beethoven. He's learning classical piano, as you okay. would. Okay. You know. Yeah, I was just kind of wondering if he was playing, like, Spanish nationalist kind of stuff, or just conventional he... classical Western music. He does both. Antonio does get him interested in Spanish folk music. Mm-hmm. But in spite of his gifts as a pianist and his interest, his parents were determined that he would have a sensible career and insisted that he finish high school and apply to the University of Granada. And so he spited them by becoming a poet. (laughs) (laughs) An even less sensible career. Not quite, not quite. Like, yeah. So in October of 1914, Federico successfully completed half of his secondary school exams he failed the other half. Whoa. <laughs> <Way there. laughs> yes. Okay. Which he took again in February of the following year. He was accepted into Granada University on the condition that he passed his exams. How can you get accepted into university having failed half your secondary school exam? I mean, he was the son of a rich man. Oh, yeah, yeah. he was. He was the right. son of a rich man. They seem quite chill about him at university. Okay. He's not much better at university than he is at school. I guess university was a bit different back in the day. Yeah. But anyway, in February of the following year, he successfully passed the rest of his exam and was accepted into Granada University to take a preparatory course of one year which could lead either into a law degree or the Faculty of Philosophy and Letters, which is functionally an arts degree. Okay, yeah. So he passed the preparatory course and managed to maintain his focus for his 
first year of actual university study. He enrolled in both the philosophy and letters and the law course, which was apparently a fairly normal thing to do. The workloads were fairly low and many students enrolled in both concurrently and got both. But he could only maintain his focus on that for the first year. In the following years, according to Gibson, Lorca barely bothered to sit an examination Mm -hmm. as his focus returned to music. It's during these years as well that he first starts writing. Mm. There is a select group of friends, basically, to whom he shows his poetry at this stage. The journalist Constantino Ruiz Carnero published a book during this time, which he dedicated to my friend Federico Garcia Lorca, inspired musician, intense prose writer, and fine poet. Oh, so pretty good. At least one friend thought he was doing pretty well at this. But it still wasn't his major interest. He and his teacher, Antonio, both believed he had the potential for a career as a professional musician and were working on persuading Federico's parents that it was a realistic career and it was worth pursuing and trying to encourage them to allow Federico to continue his study of music in Paris. Okay. Mm -hmm. In May of 1916, before they've managed to work out all this travelling to Paris situation, Mm -hmm. Antonio who was an elderly man when he started teaching mm-hmm. Federico, passed away, which essentially threw a spanner in Federico's music study plans. Mm. Because without Antonio's backing, his parents just weren't really convinced that this was going to work out as a career for him. His father was determined that he would have a degree as a backup plan if music failed. And so he sort of said, look, finish this degree, and then we'll figure out what you can do after that. Mm-hmm. So he refused to give financial support to Federico's trip to Paris. Years later, though, in an autobiographical note he wrote in 1929, Federico said, in the third person apparently, he wrote about himself in the third person. Sure, why not? Since his parents refused to allow him to move to Paris to continue his musical studies, and his music teacher had died, Garcia Lorca turned his creative urges to poetry. (laughs) Imagine writing about yourself not only in the third person, but with your soul. I, I think this is the sign of the kind of person who would write a uh, self-insert Jesus Christ yes. script. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is interesting, though, that just, like, I mean, I guess it's more that his parents won't let him study in Paris, but it kind of seems to be that just his teacher dying has ruined his music plans. Like, his teacher was an old man. He was going to die. Yeah, I mean, he's still young at this point. Like, he's still, like, 18 at this point. People Mm -hmm. don't plan super well when they're 18. And I guess when he had his teacher encouraging him and kind of saying, you know, you have the potential, we should pursue this further, he was willing to do that. And when Mm -hmm. his teacher died, it's that kind of, I don't know where to go from here. Yeah, especially it was something he had to fight for, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, and especially if this is the first teacher he's had where he's really clicked with them as a mentor. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. He did apparently have a piano teacher before that who he connected with less. Okay. So, like, Antonio is very much sort of single-handedly responsible for Federico's, like, not his interest in music or his success in music, because he's both interested and very gifted anyway, but... He's sort of single-handedly responsible for giving Federico the belief that he could do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, in his absence, Garcia Lorca turned his creative urges to poetry. <laughs> <laughs> he says poetry in that note, which he wrote like some 13 years later or something, but the first draft that we have available, so far as I know, is this oddly religious play called Christ. A religious tragedy. Here it is. In which a 19-year-old Jesus fights with his parents, who won't let him follow his vocation. 
<laughs> to be a pianist. <laughs> Presumably to be a religious leader, but like a pianist. <laughs> After which, when his parents won't support him, the emo Jesus declares that he was sad from birth and made for suffering. I mean, Jesus was canonically made for suffering. It is true, but in this context, like... <laughs> this is... wow. Um, it's an unfinished play, so I don't know how his Jesus resolved this issue. I feel we should try and take this play seriously for a moment, but I don't really have any comments to make I don't have any further context about this. Like, Ian Gibson, in his biography of Federico, just kind of made that brief summary of the play and mentioned that Federico liked to identify himself with the Christ figure and then declared that both Federico and his interpretation of Jesus in the play are sunk in a sea of erotic despair. He did not provide any quotes from the play to back up the erotic part of this. I'd love to know. This may just be a slightly different use of the word erotic. Maybe. Because I've definitely seen that in writing where they use the word erotic and they don't necessarily mean directly sexual. Sexual. It's just kind of like sort of this, intense and like... They can mean sensual And as sensual, well. yeah. Yeah. I mean, when was this biography written? In the 80s. Yeah, so potentially, you know, whereas now we would definitively use the word sensual there. Mm. He may be using the word erotic. Yeah, I really don't know. I would love to get a look at this play, but it's in Spanish. It's unfinished. I don't know where it is. (laughs) That's disappointing. The biography you mentioned, Ian Gibson, is that like the biography of Federico or are there a bunch of biographies? What's the situation? It's There are other biographies. This one is probably the most significant one. Like it's gone into research, which wasn't previously available. Oh, yeah. Okay. It talks about his homosexuality more than other people were either able to or willing to. Okay. Okay. Well, we're on that point. Federico is not one of those historical figures who leaves a lot of papers behind. He doesn't, like, catalogue his correspondence or keep a diary or anything like that, unfortunately. (laughs) I'm just shaking my head judgmentally as though I've ever, like, kept a diary for more than a week. It's fairly easy to find out where he is and, like, who he's spending time with and that kind of thing. But he didn't leave behind a great deal in terms of, like, his relationships or... Mm, Okay. Okay. It is worth mentioning that World War I is occurring at this time. I did not want to, like, 100% disregard that, but it just doesn't seem to have affected him a great deal. Because of his flat feet and uneven legs that we mentioned before, he can't join the military, even if Mm -hmm. he wanted to. Mm -hmm. And... In response to being asked whether he supported France or Germany in the war, he wrote in a letter to a friend in May 1918, Naturally, I'm a great admirer of France and hate militarism with all my soul. But all I really feel is a vast yearning for humanity. Why struggle against the flesh when the fearsome problem of the soul is uppermost? So I think you can see from that that the war is not close in his life. Yeah. It's kind of an abstract thing. Yeah. Yeah. Even the way you worded that, asked whether he supported France or Germany, just made it sound like, you know, asked, are you supporting France or Germany in the soccer? Like, (laughs) it sounded very casual. Yeah. I mean, there was a correct answer this time around. (laughs) And there was a correct answer at that time, too. It's true. True. In 1919, although his parents wouldn't permit him to travel to Paris... Federico did obtain permission from his parents to spend a year studying in Madrid. Mm. This is where he develops many of the friendships which he will continue for the duration of his life. 
So is that still studying his kind of arts degree kind of thing? Yeah. And he sort of alternates between studying in Madrid and studying in Granada over the next several years. I mean, when we say studying, let's be clear, he rarely goes to class. He often signs up for exams. He does not attend. (laughs) So he is the stereotype of the student who takes 12 years to finish an arts degree. Yeah. I think he takes nine from memory. That's practically fast. (laughs) Yes. And the whole time his parents are writing to him like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Go back to work. Go to class. And he's like, how about no? And he's like, I'm writing a book. It's full of poems. It's going to be amazing. (laughs) Is he indeed writing a book? Yes. Well, that's more legit than a lot of people who have made that claim. (laughs) He is indeed writing a book of poems. Mm -hmm. Anyway. At this time, two of his most important friendships I'm going to mention are his friendship with Louis Buñuel. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you a little bit about Buñuel now. He was studying at the University of Madrid, an equally long and meandering course of study. (laughs) He started by studying agriculture, moved on to industrial engineering before finally settling on philosophy. Of course. A natural progression. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Buñuel wrote of Federico in his 1983 autobiography. We liked each other instantly. Although we seemed to have little in common, I was a redneck from Aragon and he an elegant Andalusian. We spent I- most of our time together. I'm so intrigued as to what Spanish term they decided to translate as redneck. I do not know. As we've discussed, I don't know Spanish. I don't know Spanish either. I'm just still curious about it. <laughs> yes. I, I also like the phrase elegant Andalusian. <laughs> yes. Makes him sound like an elf. Yeah, yeah. Well, especially given we just heard Aragon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> anyway, Buñuel says... We used to sit on the grass together in the evenings behind the residencia, which was like the colleges where they stayed, and he would read me his poems. He read slowly and beautifully, and through him I began to discover a wholly new world. That sounds so idyllic. In spite of this intense and emotional connection that he seems to have formed with Federico, Buñuel was apparently intensely uncomfortable with what he called pederasts. Mm Mm-hmm. Ian Gibson mentioned briefly, and just like as a throwaway, I was kind of a little bit shocked that when Buñuel had first arrived at Madrid, one of his hobbies was beating up gay people. And then he was like, he quickly moved on to other hobbies. And I was like, you can't just say that. (laughs) Okay. So you haven't mentioned at all Federico even knowing that he is gay, let alone being openly gay. Is that just not a part of his life yet? It's not something he has ever sort of written about or talked about. We don't know to what extent he's aware at this point. Rumours do come up. Another student in the residential halls spread a rumour that Federico was gay. This shocked Buñuel, who immediately directly confronted Federico. Like, he literally came up to him and demanded to know, are you homosexual or not? Federico's only reply to this was, you and I are finished forever. And then he left the room. That's a fair response. That's pretty intense. To be clear, they are not finished forever. (laughs) (laughs) i am unsurprised (laughs) they continue to be friends i don't think anyone who says the phrase we are finished forever truly means it no if you're really finished forever you're not that melodramatic about it i'm getting the vibe that federico is a bit of a melodramatic guy yeah quite a lot it's one of the like common criticisms of his poetry especially his early poetry like just from the fact that his hobbies as a child were pretending to give mass and like theater he obviously likes to be the center of attention Yes. Mm-hmm. In the summer of 1920, Federico returned from Madrid to Granada at the behest of his parents to try and 
finish his BA. I'm willing to put money on the fact that he never finishes the BA. <laughs> <laughs> no, we already know. It takes him about nine years. Yeah, but is that nine years till he quits or nine years till he graduates? Ooh, well. <laughs> I'll put it on record that I bet he quits. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what is our bet, Alice? Because I'm willing to go against this. I go to the other room and get the cheesels. Ooh. That sounds right. Okay. So he returned to Granada in 1920 to try and finish his degree. He'd produced a play in Madrid, which was a failure. And in order to placate his parents, because he'd been trying to persuade them that he had, you know, a viable career as a writer, Mm -hmm. he was had to sort of be like, I guess I'm going to go home and finish my degree now. Do you know Mm -hmm. what his play was? Yeah. It's a very weird play in which cockroaches fall in love. It's about insects. It was apparently not a huge success. Okay. It was neither popular with the public nor with critics (laughs) who found it difficult to get behind cockroaches with human feelings. Yeah, look, I mean, so far he's had two ideas (laughs) that you've described to us and they've both been pretty bad. I promise you later on he writes much more mature ones. (laughs) I mean, he's like in his like early 20s at this stage. Yeah, Yeah, like that's pretty young. Yeah. I enough. feel 19-year-old Jesus is a rebel teen was a fine play. <laughs> <laughs> like, Green Day wrote Jesus of Suburbia, and that was a massive hit. True. <laughs> That's my critique. <laughs> anyway, he returned to Granada to finish his BA. From Granada, he wrote to a friend in Madrid, requesting one of his friend's essays in order to pass it off as his own <laughs> to pass a Spanish literature exam. Oh my god, Federico. The friend sent him the essay, which not only passed the exam, but won a prize. Orcs. Orcs. <laughs> Presumably he just awkwardly accepted that prize. <laughs> and I just like mailed it to his friend, I guess. I guess, yeah, I don't know. I hope he mailed it to his friend. Yeah, but anyway, so he passed that subject. He managed to pass a history subject without resorting to plagiarism. Good job. But he failed all of his other subjects. (laughs) Oh no, Federico. (laughs) But anyway, passing two out of four was enough to persuade his father to let him spend another period of time in Madrid. (laughs) (laughs) Provided that he actually attend class while he's there. But his father has no way of enforcing that. (laughs) No, and he does not attend class. What a surprise. (laughs) There is no evidence that he ever set foot in the university. He has such lenient parents. Yeah, his parents are super slack. And I assume they're funding this whole thing as well. Yeah, that's why he keeps having to, like, get them to let him go back to Madrid. Hmm. He continues to work on his writing projects and write to his mother about how the book of poetry is going. And somehow he manages to get her on side. And by 1921, she writes him a letter saying, we think it's a good idea for you to publish the book yourself. She praises his courage for attempting this poetry career and promises that his father will help him fund the self-publishing of his book. Wow. Okay. Okay. I hope that his writing has improved. (laughs) The book was not a great seller, but it was self-published. So I guess that was pretty inevitable. Pretty inevitable. But the handful of reviews that it did receive, like noted that he was like, skilled and creative in his use of metaphor, and that the improvement over the years that the poems were written was apparent, so they sort of said, look, this is an up-and-coming young poet, I think we can expect good things from him. Well, that's good. That's nice. 
So it was a bigger success than his play. I'm glad. So having self-published his book, he again returned to his university studies. Presumably this was a condition of his getting help publishing the book. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That he was going to finish his degree. He again signed up for a bunch of exams, including Arabic, which there appears to be no evidence of him having studied. I get this feeling that he just went alphabetically through the list of subjects and that was like (laughs) the first one that showed up. Yeah, yeah, probably. Did he also enroll in arithmetic and art history (laughs) no but he did enroll in bibliology or something what does that even mean i did not know (laughs) signed up for arabic and bibliology did not turn up to any of the exams as you can expect (laughs) and eventually concluded that maybe the double degree was a bit much (laughs) when did he start university about 1915 i think What, what year is it now 21. <laughs> so okay. six years in, he decides maybe the double degree isn't a good idea. Yeah. So he decided that he's not going to finish the BA, but he is going to finish the law degree. So in 1923, he finished the law degree. Yes. I guess I'll go and get the chisels. Yes. I guess you will. <laughs> I mean, I guess you both win. He did drop out of the BA. Yes. The yeah, he finished half the degree. I think we can call that a tie. Yeah, yeah. that's a tie. GG. GG. <laughs> <laughs> His intention upon graduating was to travel to Italy to spend some time with a friend there, but his parents vetoed that plan. Okay. Presumably because they were sick of spending money on him. That's fair enough. And so instead he settled for returning to Madrid, where he met Salvador Dali. Oh. That was very casually flipped in there. Salvador Dali is here. I'm going to tell you some things about Salvador Dali. So he was born in 1904, which makes him six years younger than Federico. And he is best known for his surrealist paintings. You might know him from his work, The Persistence of Memory, which is the Melting Clocks painting. Right now, he is a weird anti-establishment art student in Madrid. (laughs) (laughs) Beautiful. I'm going to read you Ian Gibson's description of Salvador Dali at this point, because it's just very quality. I found it hilarious. I'm already picturing that weird skinny moustache he has. (laughs) Okay. Dali in 1922 was by any standards an arresting figure. Extremely slim, he wore his jet black hair down to the shoulders, in imitation of the self-portrait by Raphael. Exaggeratedly long sideburns that set off the olive-coloured cheeks of his oval face. A voluminous wide-brimmed hat. A floppy bow tie. A jacket that reached to his knees. A flamboyant cape brushed the ground as he swept past on legs sheathed in leather gaiters. Okay, I was with you up until the cape. <laughs> There's a cape. So my mental image basically looks like one of the three musketeers at this point. I think so. <laughs> yeah. Later on, like, later on in this paragraph, he is described as ludicrously impractical. <laughs> he sounds, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> that's Dali. I mean, I don't really expect practicality from the man who painted the melty clocks. Yeah, neither do I. Sorry, what was that last item of clothing that was described on his legs gaiters gaiters g-a-i-t-a-r it's a like a leather leg former kind of yeah it protects the top of your shoes from like water and stuff getting in are his pants described because at the moment i'm picturing him without pants he's wearing a jacket down to his knees a bow tie no pants and leather and no shirt and no shirt you have yet to describe pants or a shirt Gibson did not tell me about his pants or his shirt, only his hat and his jacket, so maybe he's a flasher in leather boots. If anyone wants to send in some fan art of Salvador Dali <laughs> as described by Gibson, I personally would be very much in favour of this. Very few of Federico's letters to Dali remain, 
And while there are a number from Dali to Federico that still exist, none of them are from this period. So we don't know a lot about their impressions of each other. But what we do have is that Dali later on wrote, the personality of Federico Garcia Lorca produced an immense impression on me. And he described Federico's poetry as incendiary and communicative, and that he felt it rise up in wild, disheveled flames. Okay. So, as we discussed, Federico is very melodramatic, and Dali is about that. I mean, if you wear a cape and you're not about melodrama, what what are are you you doing? doing? (laughs) True. (laughs) So I'm going to bring this up, because, like, it's going to happen. Whenever Dali comes up, I hear people say that Dali was a fascist. Is this a factor that we're going to discuss in this podcast? Not really, because by the time that's relevant, they've pretty much fallen out. Okay. So we don't know a lot about their early meetings. We know that Dali envied Federico's charisma and intelligence. He calls this part of his life when he's just met Federico as the only moment when I glimpsed the torture that jealousy can be. Sometimes we would be walking on our way to the cafe where we held our usual literary meetings and where I knew that Lorca would shine like a fiery diamond. Suddenly I would set off at a run and no one would see me for three days. So... (laughs) (laughs) Maybe there's too much melodrama for Dali here. I mean, I ran away and didn't see anyone for three days. It's a bit of a melodramatic reaction, I would argue. Not long after they began their acquaintance, however, Dali was suspended from the Academy of Fine Arts that he attended in Madrid. He was doing some kind of political activism and he was suspended from school and so he spent the year with his family in the countryside. There's no evidence that he and Lorca corresponded at this time, but considering how few of their letters remain, I'm not going to say that they didn't. So when you're saying the letters don't remain, I know you mentioned before that Federico didn't make any effort to kind of catalogue and keep his papers. Mm. Can we just assume that those letters were just kind of lost to time or actively gotten rid of? Or I think they were mostly just lost. I wouldn't be surprised if things that did remain were destroyed for their content. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I would say the majority of them, like, they were just papers and they got lost. Okay. However, as soon as Dali returned from the countryside after his suspension, the two of them were together in Madrid again, they rekindled the friendship, and by the Easter of 1925, Federico was spending the Easter holiday with Dali's family at their villa. So they're pretty close pals. Yeah, they're pretty close, and he becomes quite close with Dali's family as well. Mm-hmm. He immediately befriended Dali's sister, Anna Maria, who he describes as the most attractive woman he'd ever seen at that point. Is he attracted to women? In his youth, he's attracted to women, but as he gets older, it seems less so. Okay. To be clear, like, nothing goes down between he and Anna Maria. They're mm-hmm. just good friends. She says of him, the two of them arrived at the villa at lunchtime, and Anna Maria writes, By the time we got to dessert, we were such good friends that it was as if we had always known one another. Oh. So they were just very good friends. That's nice. That's good. And he had a super nice time there. They went boating. Federico could not swim and was somewhat afraid of the water. This didn't stop him going boating, but it meant that he treated every boating outing as like a dramatic adventure where they could all die. I mean, it's mostly just him who could die. Yeah. (laughs) But like, to some extent, that's kind of fair. If you can't swim and you fall into the water, you're in a bit of trouble. So I spent a long time trying to figure out whether Dali and Federico were 
in a relationship, we're just good friends, we're mm-hmm. what? So the Ian Gibson biography that I worked yeah. with a lot of the time was published in about 83. Dali in 85 wrote this letter to an editor of a newspaper addressed at Gibson, accusing Gibson of misrepresenting his relationship with Federico and portraying it as though it was a sugary sweet romance novel. So Gibson does say they were a couple. So Gibson says there's this like unconsummated love between them. Oh, okay. And Dali wrote this letter saying, now that's a misrepresentation. And I had to spend a while trying to figure out whether what Dali meant was why are you sexualizing our deep platonic friendship or whether what Dali meant was why is this consummation so important? We were clearly in love. Is there an option where Dali is saying why are you representing this as unconsummated? We were clearly in a relationship. We know for a fact that they didn't have sex because in a 1969 interview, Dali is quoted saying, and bear with me because I found two different translations of this quote and they feel quite different. Cool. This is getting fraught already. So first translation. Yeah. So Dali is quoted saying about Federico, he was homosexual, as everyone knows, and madly in love with me. He tried to screw me twice. I was extremely annoyed because I wasn't homosexual and I wasn't interested in giving in. Besides, it hurts, where it refers to gay sex here. So nothing came of it, but I felt awfully flattered. Deep down, I felt that he was a great poet and I owe him a tiny bit of the divine Dali's asshole. Wow. <laughs> Let's okay. be clear. The part that changes in translation is not I owe him a tiny bit of the divine Dali's asshole. <laughs> Everyone agreed on that point. Let's hear translation two. Okay. Translation two goes, he was in love with me. He tried twice to censored me. I could not yield. Besides, it hurt. And thus the thing never took place. But I felt extremely flattered from the point of view of prestige. So, like, it's similar. Like, but the tone was just so different. And... When I sort of looked further into this, it was very unclear whether what happened was that Dali rejected his advances and said, no, I don't want to have sex with you, or whether they literally tried to have sex and Dali had been like, no, I'm not enjoying this anal sex, it's painful. Yeah, one quote said it hurt and the other said it hurts, and I feel like that's actually the key difference. Yeah, it was just very unclear what happened. Like, is he saying the act of anal sex hurts or having sex with Federico hurt? I don't know, yeah. And regardless of which way you take that, that's an odd way to phrase it for someone who's not experienced anal sex. That's also true, yeah. Do you want to complicate matters further? Okay. The fact that Dali doesn't want to have sex with Federico doesn't actually necessarily speak for his desire not to have gay sex. Dali's own dislike of physical intimacy was generally well known in his social circles. A close friend of his, Carlos Lozano, told Ian Gibson that Dali was totally unable to have sexual relations with anybody, not even probably with Gala, Gala being the woman he was married to later on. Dali is potentially asexual. Mm. He hated being touched. And when he touched you, it was like being clawed by an eagle. (laughs) (laughs) That's not very sexy. But that seems like quite a good analogy. (laughs) Like that thing where a bird climbs onto your arm and it's just kind of like the bird doesn't really want to be there. You don't really want the bird to be there. But it's happening anyway. Okay, so can we just go back to that quote? And I think in the first translation, Dali made a comment about whether he himself was gay. What did he say? It said, he tried to screw me twice. I was extremely annoyed because I wasn't homosexual and I wasn't interested in giving in. 
And that section just didn't exist in the second translation. No, there was no ellipsis. It just wasn't there. And there are quotes from friends of Dali that talk about his interest in the male physical form. Okay. And the beauty of the male body. But he has no interest in having sex with but if they're talking anyone. About, if they're talking about his interest in the male physical form, like he is an artist, do they mean that artistically or do they mean that he's like physically attracted to men but doesn't want to sleep with them? Do you know him? Yeah, I don't know. So uh, where do these two translations come from? Alan Bosquet's interviews were originally written in French okay. in 1969. The translation which I read out first, he was homosexual, as everyone knows, and madly in love with me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was published at the time in 1969, I believe, and it was by Joachim Neugrochel. Okay. The second one was by Marianne Kors mm-hmm. in a book she wrote in 2009 about the relationship between Dali and Federico. Okay. Which she was very much taking the angle that it was a romantic relationship. Mm-hmm. And so I can see then why her version would have come out with that sort of, we tried, but it hurt. Yeah. And her version also being later, but having an omission that's not mentioned definitely makes it look like she's the one who's, you know, altered the source to fit her argument. Yeah. Yeah. But in either case, I feel like the fact that we know from other sources that Dali is just generally not interested in sex... Mm-hmm. means that you can't read the fact that he resisted Federico's sexual advances as something. So this doesn't preclude a romantic relationship. Yes. If Dali just is asexual or for some other reason and intersex. I mean, given that they got to the point where Federico felt comfortable making a sexual advance upon Dali. Yeah. Which seems to be happening quite a while after they've met. Yeah, and which he apparently does more than once. He apparently, like, asks twice. Mm. Yeah. On different occasions. Kind of indicates to me that there was at least a very, very intense relationship, whether or not you could qualify that as romantic. Yeah. Is, you know, up to, I guess, the people who were involved, who we cannot, unfortunately, speak to for this podcast. Yeah. What a different podcast it would be. It would be. Anyway, it's not that Dali has no interest in sex at all. His interest is just not in having it himself, basically. He's not interested in, like, touching other people, having other people touch himself. He does write about masturbating, so we know that he does that. And he and his wife are also known to throw orgies, which he doesn't participate in, but he does watch later on in his life. His sort of enjoyment of, like, watching other people have sex appears in his relationship with Federico. Unable to have sex with Federico himself, whether that's just because he doesn't want to or because it doesn't work for him. He persuaded Federico to sleep with a mutual friend of theirs, a woman called Margarita Manso, while he watched. Okay. That's very straight. Yes. (laughs) So I feel like even if Federico and Dali aren't having sex, there's arguably a sexual relationship between Federico and Dali. Yeah, that was definitely my feeling there, that it's not a direct like sexual interaction, but it's definitely a sexual interaction. It's sex by proxy. Yes. yes. I, yeah. I don't know yeah. any other real way to describe that. No. So when you say he persuaded Federico yeah. to have sex with a mutual friend, according to who? Like, where does the account of how this happened come from? According to Dali. Dali himself. According okay. to Dali. Dali says that he persuaded Margarita to sleep with Federico and that 
Margarita. The phrase he used is replaced him in the sacrifice. Okay. Which sounds weird, but I feel is less weird given that Dali and Federico, I don't really go into it a lot, but when they talk about their relationship, they use a lot of like references to Catholic saints and religious imagery and that kind of thing. So I feel it makes it a little bit less. So what you're saying is that Federico hasn't really gotten over his self-insert. <laughs> yeah, that's what I say. <laughs> self-insert Jesus thick. has returned. <laughs> but I think also if you're following on from the tone of um, I owed him a piece of my divine asshole or whatever, like yeah. placed him in the sacrifice is like directly tonally in line with that. Yeah, that makes sense as a way to phrase that if that's how you're talking. That's true. Yeah, and also given that it seems that Dali isn't necessarily that interested in sex, but he's interested in... Like, he seems to be interested in it more as a transactional thing in regards to the artistic merit of Federico, for want of a better explanation of that. You mean him saying that Federico was kind of, what did he say, a great poet? A great great poet, so I owed him. So he deserves. Yeah, (laughs) it, it almost seems like sex as a consummation of their, like artistic connection rather than mm. sex as a physical act in and of itself which makes sense given that Dali doesn't seem to be particularly interested in that yeah 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 i think it's a valuable point the meaningful thing about sex for Dali here is not the physical act mm. and so the fact that they don't actually have the physical act is not really significant because they still have this sexual interaction mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. In 1926, Federico did write a poem called Ode to Salvador Dali. Okay. The vast majority of the poem is really just about how Dali is a great artist and great man, and it's very impressive how he does all this art, and it's very good. Mm-hmm. But I am going to read you one verse from it, which goes, But above all, I sing a shared thought that joins us in the dark and the golden hours. It is not art, this light that blinds our eyes. Rather, it is love, friendship, the clashing of swords. (laughs) (laughs) This is Jason's there going, swords. Swords. (laughs) (laughs) That's not where my mind is going. (laughs) I can see where Jason went. Given what we were saying a moment ago about that kind of, like, artistic consummation of their relationship... It's interesting that I suppose that in the poem he says it's not just art, it's love. Hmm. Friendship. Yeah. The clashing of swords. The clashing of swords. I don't see how the clashing of swords fits in, frankly. I mean, to some extent, I think the clashing of swords there is just that kind of like intellectual debate. Oh, okay. That yeah. kind of passionate conversation. I guess it's yeah. stuff like part of a literary circle together. Yeah. Yeah. To me, that's probably what The Clashing of Swords is about. But look, I'm not going to discount your reading, Jane. (laughs) My reading, by which you mean my, like, immature laughter. Dali and Federico maintained this kind of intensity of relationship. From what I can see, like, opinions on this differ. They're definitely still friends up until sort of 1929. But the intensity of the admiration they have for each other begins to wane in the sort of 1927 onwards years. In 1927, Federico published a book of poetry, which he called Gypsy Songs, which was inspired by the folk music of rural Spain, particularly of the people in Andalusia, where he came from. Mm -hmm. And the version of Spain that he presented in this book was very kind of this like rural idealized past Spain and it didn't sit well with Dali's interest in modernity 
Mm-hmm. So what Dali says, his criticism of this book, he writes to Federico, your songs are Granada without trolleys and even without airplanes. They are an old Granada with natural, purely popular, constant elements that are far from today. He feels that Federico is not engaging with the current world in the way that he thinks art should. Mm. And so some of his admiration for Federico fades at this point. Victor Fernandez, who collected the few letters between Federico and Dali, which exist, says of them, there was no break, just a drift. Okay. Mm -hmm. In the gap left by their diminishing friendship, you might remember Louis Buñuel. Yes. He was here before. He He liked to bash gay people for fun. He apparently only engaged in that hobby briefly. I'm still perturbed that Gibson just said that in a sentence and then left. Yeah. Sure. But regardless, he's back. Regardless, he's back. This time, his closeness with Dali is increasing. Buñuel's closeness with Dali. Yes. Okay. Buñuel becomes close to Dali, where previously he was closer to Federico. Mm -hmm. There were some suggestions that Buñuel was intentionally trying to break up Dali and Federico. Okay. I'm not really sure whether that was true or not. Who's making these suggestions? I'm just wondering if you meant, like, scholars or if you meant, like, friends who knew them at the time. Yeah, no, mostly scholars. Yeah, like, scholars have suggested that jealousy was playing a part here. But I didn't find the quotes from Dali or from Federico to back that up. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. But given that scholars who have undoubtedly done more research than me and speak Spanish, so have a great deal more capacity to read their papers than I do. That's always the problem with people whose English isn't their native language. You have to rely so much on what scholars have said. Yeah, and given the kind of translation differences and Mm. that kind of thing, it gets a bit... It's fraught. Yeah. So it's possible that Buñuel was doing this intentionally. It's known that he didn't like their relationship. Mm -hmm. But he did become close with Dali. They worked together a great deal, culminating in the surrealist film that they made together in 1929, which was called The Andalusian Dog. You have actually seen this I've seen that movie. Yeah, we went to like Um, a Dali exhibition years ago and we saw that movie. Yeah. That was weird. If any of our listeners want to look up that movie, feel free. I'm just going to warn you. It has some horrible content involving eyeballs. Yeah, there's a fair bit of body horror in that. Cool. Yeah. So maybe have a look at content warnings for that before you just go ahead and watch it. To what does the titular dog refer to? This is also unclear. Neither <laughs> neither Buñuel or Dali ever like stated it, but Federico took it that the Andalusian dog in question was himself and was that's, very offended. That's what I was kind of thinking. Yes. Which marked Mm. essentially the end of the relationship between Dali and Federico. That's really awkward if that wasn't what Dali meant. (laughs) Presumably if that wasn't what Dali meant, he would have written to Federico and been like, I'm sorry, you read it wrong. I was talking about an actual dog that just wasn't in the movie because this is surrealism and we can do that. Yeah, but I mean, given that their friendship seems to have started diminishing with the publication of Federico's Andalusian poems... Yeah. It seems a bit on the nose. Federico definitely understood that this title was a dig at him. Mm-hmm. 
But the content of the movie itself, like from what I remember, there's not a clear message in it. It's yeah, truly surrealist. There I... may have been a reference there that no one is able to get because it may have been something that referred to very, very specific events in their lives. Yeah. But also there may not have been any references in the actual piece of work. It could have just been that the title is a dig and the piece of work is a piece of work that Dali was nonetheless still proud of. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think it would take some unpacking to find the intentions in that movie. Mm. Mm. Yeah. But in any case, that marked the end of the relationship between Dali and Federico. Mm-hmm. Understandably, this was quite upsetting to Federico. Mm-hmm. His family wasn't 100% clear on what was going on, but they could tell that something had gone awry in his life. Yeah. And so they organized for him to take a trip to New York. Okay. Where he signed up to study English. Mm-hmm. His studying patterns were as his studying patterns always were. <laughs> he did a lot more writing of his own personal projects than he ever did studying. So you mean to learn the English language or to study English like literature? Yeah, to learn English. He signed up to learn English at a university, but he did not. I mean, <laughs> presumably he learned some English regardless just by being in New York. But he didn't kind of rigorously attend class. He did not rigorously attend class, to nobody's surprise. Okay. In 1929, while he was ostensibly studying English, he also became interested in social activism. Mm-hmm. He became quite interested in the plight of African-American people in New York and Hispanic people in New York mm-hmm. and generally marginalized groups in New York. While he was there, he did a lot of writing about the effects of the Wall Street collapse. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about how he's into kind of social activism and marginalized groups, does that ever extend to queer people or is that not something that's on his radar as kind of a identity group that he... I don't think that really occurs to him as an identity group. Okay. He's interested in marginalized groups in New York, and he kind of connects that to his childhood experiences in rural Spain. He mm-hmm. Like, he himself was well off. He's as had we a know. pretty privileged life. He himself life. has had an incredibly privileged life, but even as a child, he was quite aware of, like, poverty in the area that he lived in. Mm-hmm. He talks about a childhood friend he had who he said he would go over to see this friend and play with this girl, except on washing day where he wasn't allowed to come because they had no clothes to wear because they were washing their clothes. And so he talks about these experiences of poverty that he saw in Spain and kind of connects them with the experiences that he again sees in New York. Mm -hmm. He himself is not poor. Let's, Let's be clear. I didn't think he was poor. He himself is supported by his parents. But he does get very interested in rectifying social inequalities and he becomes a socialist. Okay, okay. Dun, 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 dun. dun. He becomes a socialist, he does. <laughs> a socialist, not a communist? Not a communist. Okay. And that's a point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's a point when he goes back to Spain. Mm-hmm. So he stays in New York for one year after which he returns in 1930 to Spain, mm-hmm. where he's appointed the director of the Theatre La Baraca. Oh. I just didn't feel like he'd really done anything to warrant that. It's a student theatre, to oh, be clear. Okay. He's the director of a student theatre. I understand he gets paid for this position. It's during his years working at La Baraca that he writes his most famous works, mm-hmm. which are 
a triptych of plays set in rural Spain. And all three of these plays tackle issues to do with, like, the place of women in Spanish society and, like, Mm -hmm. in family life in rural Spain and issues with, like, bourgeois family life in Spain. So I feel they're very much the combination, I think, of his political interests and his kind of personal experiences. Yeah. 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 So he was writing what he knew, but also what he was being exposed to. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this approach to writing basically seems to have been his most successful. These are his most mature works. They're what essentially makes his fame. They're what he's still known for today. Okay. Mm -hmm. He worked with La Baraka for six years, during which political tensions in Spain are increasing. Okay, so the Spanish Civil War has three sides. It has a communist side, a nationalist side, which is a fascist side, and it has a monarchist side. Okay. Obviously, there are, like, subgroups below this. There are sort of anti-communist groups that don't belong to the other groups and assorted things like that. It's really a situation. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I'm not going to talk about the Spanish Civil War a huge amount because at the very beginning in 1936 of the Spanish Civil War, in Granada, where Federico is living, political unrest is particularly bad. Nobody will accept the position of the mayor. Because Mm -hmm. as soon as they accept the position of the mayor, they're afraid that somebody is going to assassinate them. Yeah. Yep. So Federico's brother-in-law takes the position. Mm Mm-hmm. Within a week of his taking the position, he has been killed. Yeah. This is the 18th of August, 1936. On the same day, Federico is arrested. The following day, Federico is shot. Oh, okay. It's unclear who is responsible for his death. Gibson suggests that it's the nationalists who killed Federico, and it's because of his political involvement in communism. Okay, yeah. Mm. Up until Gibson, the general position is that Federico is an apolitical figure. He's a socialist, but not a communist. He has friends in anti-communist groups. Mm -hmm. Um... So it's unlikely from, like, that perspective that he would be killed for his communist involvement. But given that he's still a socialist and has some strong political opinions which come through in his work, that's possible anyway. A report in July 1965 described him as a socialist who engaged in homosexual practices and essentially blamed his death on like a combination of his political views and his personal life. He did have friends in like a variety of political movements. He wasn't affiliated with any of the major groups. Okay. We don't know though. His body was never found. So how do we know that he was shot? Police reports at the time declare that he's been executed by but there was fascist n- forces, but there is no body We don't know where the body is in 2015, I think. They tried to excavate the place where they thought the body was. It turned out not to be there. Okay. Basically, what we can take away is he was killed during political upheaval, despite not being affiliated with any one of the three main groups fighting for power. Yeah. We believe it was by nationalist group. We're not 100% sure about this, and it could have been to do with his socialist leanings, it could have been to do with his personal inclinations. And it could have been simply his relationship with his brother-in-law. Yeah, Mm -hmm. but 
if he was killed for his personal inclinations of being gay or for his socialist leanings, either way, it makes sense that that would have been by this nationalist fascist group. Yeah. Okay. After his death, in spite of them not being particularly close in the final six years of his life, Mm -hmm. Dali starts writing and talking about Federico again. Mm -hmm. For understandable reasons, he downplays the idea that they were having sex or that they were in a relationship. But he does talk about the significance of their relationship and that Federico was one of the most important people in his artistic development. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So just to be clear, Federico was known to be gay, although we don't know if he had a relationship with Dali. We don't know if he had a relationship with Dali, and we don't have a great deal of papers about his gay relationships in general. So we know he had a love affair with the sculptor Emilio Aladrin Perojo. Mm-hmm. I don't know a great deal about that. His papers referring to his homosexuality are quite hard to find. Okay, but we do know he had at least one love affair with a man. Yeah, we do know this. And Gibson talks about this in the introduction to his book. He sort of says the reason that this hasn't really been explored is because Federico, as we've discussed, didn't produce a whole lot of papers Mm -hmm. other than his writings. And so we don't know a lot about the relationships beyond that they occurred, according to his friends. What period of his life? Um, was this relationship occurring in? In like 1927, 28. So as his relationship with Dali is kind of petering out, he has this relationship with Emilio Perojo. And that also lasts, I think, a couple of years and ends around that time, at which point he's single and his parents are like, what's going on? They sent him to New York. Okay. Yeah, okay. So he wasn't very old at all when he died. How old was he? 38, I think. Okay, okay. So what's the current Spanish view? Because like you mentioned at the start that, you know, Gibson had to debunk these myths about Federico. Obviously, he's reasonably well known in Spain to have myths. He is very well known in Spain. He's considered like the second greatest writer in Spain after Cervantes, who wrote Don Quixote. Oh, okay. So he's a big deal. Yeah, he's a big deal in Spain. Like, I understand why these myths exist. We just don't hear about him because he's a Spanish language writer. And he writes for theatre or he writes poetry, which are not really things that get hugely famous in Australia. And also the things that are harder to translate. Yeah. prose. Mm. Yeah. Or harder to translate in a way that will also be compelling for an English-speaking Yeah. 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 And I guess also because his work dealt so much with, like, social structures in Spain and that kind of thing. Particularly... If you're looking from an Australian context, he's writing with the back with his background in Spain, making some it seemed to be implied that there was some reference to his experiences in America. Yeah. But using the social structures of Spain to explain that. Yeah. From an Australian perspective or even from the perspective of anyone who's not Spanish or American or Spanish American. Yeah. <laughs> that's gonna be very, very hard to pass when you again filter that through a different language. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I can see why he's not very well known in an English language mm-hmm. context. Dali is definitely the better known of the two there. That's because you don't have to translate art. Because, yeah, you don't have to translate the Melty Clocks. Since Gibson's biography, and maybe before mm-hmm. that, when like people have known that Federico was interested in men, yeah. is that also an accepted part of his identity as Spain's second greatest writer, that Spain's second greatest writer was a gay man, or is that a less talked about? 
That's, yeah, very much a less talked about thing. Like, the evidence is there if you look for it, but it's not sort of in his mythos. So it's like Americans discovering that Walt Whitman was gay. Yeah, yeah. The first sort of preliminary research I did, you get a lot of these, like, clickbaity news articles from the last, like, five or ten years that are like, were Spain's two greatest artists a doomed love affair? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, okay. Um, so, yeah. And so have there been recent writings that have prompted these headlines, or are they just searching I mean, for something to write about? Yeah, I think this is just people searching for something to write about. I do think, like, generally interest in that aspect of his life has picked up gradually. Mm. Since I think Gibson wrote his book in the 80s, there have been several others published. There have been a number of papers talking about his relationship with Dali and how it affected his work and Dali's work. I mean, that's good. I was going to say that is a general trend that, you know, obviously we see in a lot of the people we talk about, is that gradually we're talking more and more about possible queer relationships or, you know, this person that we always had evidence that they were queer, we're now actually looking at that evidence and it's becoming part of their identity that we discuss, that they are queer. Yeah. This has been Queer as Fact. I'm still Irene. I'm Alice. And I'm Jason. Thank you for listening. If you want to get in contact with us, you can find us on social media, on Facebook, Tumblr, or Twitter as Queer as Fact. You can get the rest of our episodes wherever you normally get your podcasts, including now Spotify. You can email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com. If you do listen to us on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a review. It helps us reach a wider audience and would be great. We'll be back on the 8th of August with Eli talking about William Dobell, the controversial winner of the 1943 Archibald Prize for Portraiture. And we'll be back with our next full-length episode on the 15th of August when we'll be doing a collaboration with our fellow history podcast, History is Gay. If you haven't heard them already, we encourage you to check them out in the meantime. They're at historyisgay.podcast.com. You can also find them on Twitter as historyisgaypod, on Facebook as historyisgay, or on Tumblr as historyisgaypodcast. They're a great podcast, and I really encourage you to have a listen before you hear us talk with them on the 15th of August. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.